This is The Ignition Show. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of The Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. On today's show, we're speaking with Dr. Daniel L. Stickler. Daniel is the co-founder and chief medical officer of the Apiron Center for Human Potential and chief science officer for the Apiron Academy. He's a visionary pioneer behind the systems-based precision lifestyle medicine, a new paradigm that redefines medicine from the old disease model to one of limitless peak performance in all aspects of life. A physician to high-performing executives and entrepreneurs and also suburban moms and dads who want to upgrade their current state of vitality and performance, he's an author, speaker, blogger, and podcaster. In addition, Daniel's a medical director for the Neurohacker Collective, a Google consultant for wearable technology and artificial intelligence in healthcare, and a guest lecturer at Stanford University on epigenetics in clinical practice. Daniel, it's a true honor to have you here. Welcome to the Ignition Show. I'm excited to be here. Great, and I um, appreciate you making time on your on your time in Costa Rica today. And I'd love to begin with maybe a bit of your origin story. And I understand that at some point you had a clear distinction between that you saw between the so-called healthcare, which is more like sick care. What do those terms mean to you? And why did that distinction transform your approach to helping people optimize their life? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a long story, so I will I will condense it down for your listeners here. I I basically entered medical school with the uh, false impression of what I was getting into. I was thinking along the lines of physicians are there to really uh, help people live better lives in general, and and to a degree that that exists, but the bulk of what uh, is trained in the medical schools now is disease model and pharmacology, and that just didn't sit well with me, but I was, I was there. I'd always wanted to be a physician. And so as I went through the, the different trainings and everything, surgery kind of attracted me. I loved working with my hands. I, I loved the fact that it was not like, you know, I saw internal medicine and family medicine as kind of a stepwise postponement of death. Uh, while I was there, it was just like, you know, somebody comes in and something happens and you intervene and try to slow that process. And, that just didn't sit well with me. Surgery was something I could jump into, do a correction, put them back on their path. But then I started noticing that, it, that almost everybody I was operating on, it was rare that it was something that was not within their control at some point in their life. And this was kind of got me thinking, you know, why are we doing all of this? You know, gallbladder disease, obesity, um, you know, the the occasional appendectomy or the trauma, you know, that's a necessity there. That's something that, that really makes sense. But most of what I was doing was doing things that related to something that could have been corrected if addressed sooner in life. And with that, I, I kind of progressed. I started doing weight loss surgery, and I thought this was great because I can take somebody with a quality of life and intervene and, and create a better quality of life for them. And that was in alignment with what I was thinking. But after about 3,000 of those operations, I, I realized that, again, I was, I was doing something that was not a necessity if we had done something sooner in life or taken a different approach such as lifestyle. And so as a hobby, I started a, what, I, what was at the time called an age management practice where we, we basically took healthy individuals and even, even individuals that had some chronic illness. And we just worked with them pretty aggressively one-on-one, -on -one, worked with all lifestyle factors, and I was seeing great improvements in that. So I overlapped that with surgery for about four or five years, uh, started adding things like genetics and getting more personalized data on each person. And realized this is what I'd always wanted to do. This is what I always envisioned um, medicine to be. And so that's that's the course that my path took. I, in 2009, I walked out of the operating room and just took my gown off and said, I'm done. That's it. I'm not going to do any more. Mm. And people thought I'd lost, lost my mind. And uh, I had a couple supporters in that, and uh, they've hung with me ever since. So. You know, it's been a, it's been a wild ride, you know, trying to to create a paradigm that didn't exist was was a challenge. Yeah, I can imagine. And uh, like uh, like the saying goes, the pioneers are the ones that get the arrows. 
And so I can imagine how your many people in your field kind of thought you might have been lost your marbles, but uh, good good thing you you stuck with it. You, yeah. You, you mentioned there. Uh, so many questions are coming to my mind. You mentioned there. You know, a lot of the current paradigm, and certainly over the last many centuries, the paradigm has been about postponement of death and and things. If we did things earlier, we could really make a fundamental difference in our health and let's call it. I don't know the second chapter of our life, whatever it may be. I've had. The, I want to. Uh, pose a thought to you and see what your your experience and your your perspective is i've had a thought for many years now i'm, I'm 48 years old right now and i've had the thought that that the from 45 years old to 55 years old is is really an important decade where we can make choices health related choices lifestyle related choices that really change the trajectory of our life and wellness especially in our 70s and 80s or and beyond is that is that a good way of thinking about it? Or is there some flaws in that? How might you course correct that if that's a fundamental core belief that I've been operating on? Well, it's, it's correct in a, in a small degree. And what I mean by that is that the, the process of, of aging and deterioration of the human system begins even preconception. And this is something we've learned from, from epigenetics where even what the parents are doing and what the ancestors have done have actually encoded kind of programming into, into the DNA. I mean, you know, a, a father who is stressed and, and drinks alcohol in the three months leading up to pregnancy can, can have a child that experiences a lot of the ill effects over their lifetime from what happens during that, that period of time. I mean, we're, we, in our coaching academy, we actually have a preconception track where we work with the science of epigenetics and how it impacts the, the pregnancy. And we, we're having great success with it. I mean, people absolutely love it and had no idea that, that all of these things impacted, you know, the, the preconception period, the pregnancy period in the first two years of life are, they set the stage. I mean, these are some of the most critical periods of time for a human being. Now, the, the 45 to 55, what you're actually experiencing there is that's when the system really starts to take the exponential change. This is where the the aging starts to set in. I mean, we're we're pretty resilient to to poor lifestyle up until about the age of 30, 35. Mm -hmm. I mean, we you look at these teenagers that eat like crap, stay up all night and everything else and they're fit and healthy looking. Uh, but what they're doing is they're actually putting in, laying in programs into that DNA. I mean, the, the epigenetics is the software of the human body. I mean, the, the genetic code is just the hardware. And it's important to know that hardware and the individual aspect of that hardware. But really, the lifestyle is the program that's being laid down. And rewriting that program can occur at any age, but the longer you wait to do that, the, the harder it's going to be, the more intensive it needs to be. And because the body is, is designed to age, I mean, we're, we're truly programmed to, to age and deteriorate and die. I mean, that's the way that our, our genetics have kind of set us up. And during that 45 to 55 year old period, that's where these these impacts of the lifestyle over that time frame start to really become apparent because you start losing the ability to do the things that you used to do. You start aging from a uh, phenotypic standpoint, you know, that look. I mean, I went through this when I entered um, surgery residency. People referred to me as uh, Doogie Howser. This was a show way back when yeah. of this really young kid that, you know, was a surgeon and or a doctor. And by the time I finished surgery, I had aged dramatically. Um, when I when I walked away from surgery uh, 20 years later, um, or not quite 20 years later, but my body was was destroyed. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't overweight or anything like that. Uh, I exercised to maintain that look of fitness, but internally I had aged dramatically. My hair turned gray, and um, you know, it was years of poor sleep and poor nutrition and the, the exercise was kind of masking that, but then it starts to catch up and that catch up period is truly that 45 to 55 year period. Yeah. Well, it's, um, you, you validated, you introduced some new thoughts there and you certainly validated my thought as well that I agree that, uh, I've got a lot of, a lot of friends. Uh, I played football in university. I can think back to those days and the damage from not just from sport, but what we would do after the sport, 
um, and how it will catch up. It absolutely will catch up. But I know there's a lot, and we'll, we'll get into it, on what we can do to slow down or reverse the, the, the path that we're on. And um, also, I just want to dive into, you mentioned there about you know, things that can happen preconception and in those first couple of years. Uh, I've got a, a brand new son. My wife and I, uh, we've got a four-month-old. And we're very much, you know, very much, uh, we have a heightened sense of awareness, I suppose, on some of the choices and influences that will shape very early. But if I can ask a selfish, selfish question with a, with a newborn baby, and you mentioned the first couple of years are so critical, what are, what are some of the, the leading things that new parents should be aware of, if, if not, not only act on, uh, in terms of shaping long-term well, health and wellness? Well- it's it's an interesting time period because you know we've in this current day and age we're all about you know get the baby Einstein videos and and really get them reading early and get them doing these things but the the human system actually has a programmed phase too and what we're finding now is that when we try to accelerate these developmental phases we actually are creating detrimental effects in the long run and you can you can see this the children will be ahead of their class in the first couple of years of school but then as school progresses the rest of the class catches up and what then happens is that the social aspect of that child actually becomes impaired i mean there's some pretty dramatic um studies on this out of europe on these kids that went through early uh accelerated uh, cognitive development periods you know it's we we have a the human system is programmed in a way of development that needs to be followed over this time frame, and we've we've kind of altered that course. And you know, I'm all for enhancement of things, but not generally during that development period. That it's kind of a, a critical piece that we need to follow. You know, get the kids outdoors, get them playing, get them in the dirt, uh, all of this stuff, rather than trying to accelerate their their ability to read. I mean, you, you get a kid reading too early or watching TV too early, like the baby Einstein videos, you actually impair their vision in the long term. Hmm. So there's a lot of things that we don't think about. And, and in this first year of life, breastfeeding is, is absolutely essential. And what we've found with this is breast milk is probably the most bioactive nutrient that, that we can ever imagine. I mean, the, the contents of breast milk Uh, There are stem cells in breast milk. There are certain nutrients that the child needs that change over over the course of time as the child ages. There are these things called exosomes. And exosomes are really interesting. They're like these little email packets that are created uh, to inform cells of what's happening around the body or in the environment. So when a child consumes the breast milk, they get the exosomes from the mother. The mother's informing that child's system of what life is like out there in the world. And so if the mother is stressed, uh, if the mother is eating poorly, if uh, she's not exercising, those kind of messages get to the kid and say, you know, oh, this is a very stressful world. We need to program our, our genetics in order to to accommodate our ability to thrive in this world. I mean, you've probably heard the... Um, the Dutch hunger famine story where the um, the kids born when the food was in abundance versus when during the famine, they have different profiles going through life and yes. different health risks. Well, what happened there is there was a mismatch of what the child experienced versus what it was like. Now, there, there's another story that most people don't hear about, which is the age-matched Russian children who also went through that famine but after the famine, life didn't get much better. And what happened is these kids actually thrived because their, their early, uh, you know, in utero environment matched their, their post utero environment. And so they were able to not get the chronic diseases and, and uh, abnormal stress responses that the Dutch kids did because there was a complete mismatch in what they were programmed for. Yes. Yeah, and I guess in hindsight, sometimes the answers become much more clear, um, and it's fascinating how the body can adapt and and um, and evolve to the stimulus and the environment that it's around. Um, so just to just to come back on one thing you said there is, 
um, back to the, the us having a newborn, what I'm taking away from what you said is, you know, let the kid be a kid. And sure, you can read to them, but with no need to kind of double down on the acceleration of their cognitive or physical development. Just let them develop on their own pace and allow them to flourish at their, at their own time. Correct. Yeah. I guess the, the, the bookend of that, of that story and that personal anecdote is uh, my parents, uh, very unfortunately, I lost both my parents this year. Uh, just my mom passed away just a couple of weeks ago, both to cancer. And uh, my dad was 82, mom was 76. And, you know, by all accounts, they lived a healthy life. They were physically active. They had a very loving relationship, very happily married for over 50 years. You know, they quote unquote did the right things. But, you know, sometimes, uh, certainly with cancer, it's, uh, we, we don't have all the control over it. And I heard, I heard a stat the other day that I find personally alarming that I think it was by 2030, and I don't know the, the, the source of this, by 2030, 50% of the population will have cancer. Now, what do you think, maybe with cancer, just overall with illness, and certainly maybe the illnesses that tend to appear later in life, what are we doing wrong? And maybe a double-barreled question, what are we doing wrong? And what is the medical world getting wrong? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a, that's a tough question to, to answer, but you know, number one, going back to the cancer aspect, I mean, there, there really aren't any true cancer genes of adult development of cancer. They just, that's a, a myth that's been propagated. Sure. You can have a greater propensity to get cancer, but you've got to have something happen in life. Some exposure, some events, that that cascade to the point where cancer occurs. I mean, we have, you know, at, at our age right now, we have neoplastic cells throughout our body. And, and you know, people hear neoplasm and they think cancer. Well, they, they essentially are. But the body has corralled them off, turned them off. And so they're all over the place. I mean, we have them there. But the body has a really good ability to control that. As we age, we start losing that ability to control it what we can do is we can minimize those risks through lifestyle approaches. I mean, things that we do during the course of our life, uh, and it's never too late to, to put these in, can alter the course of the, the development of cancers and things like that. And people just don't give enough weight to that. I hear so many times people saying, oh, well, you know, I have a family history of diabetes. I'm destined to get it. And cancers and, and everything like that. No, you have predispositions. And, and, you know, that's the important thing about genetics. Genetics is not an exact science. Genetics is typically a probability base. And that's why, you know, even though I run a genetics company, we don't allow our genetic reports or testing to be delivered direct to consumer because consumer, you can't create a report that's direct to consumer. You have to interact with the person in order to supply a really an actionable report to them. And that includes aspects of understanding the lifestyle and the history of that person. Yes. And, and uh, you've, you've touched on a couple of times here. Can you just give a, a grounding for those who are listening who uh, may be novices to, the, to that world and your world? Uh, can you just talk to us about what epigenetics are and why that's so important? Yeah, I mean, it, the, the simplest way to think of it is, like I said, the, the genetics are the hardware. So, you know, you have a computer that has this, this hardware that, that doesn't do anything. I mean, you can't turn a computer on that has no software on it and, and expect to, to be able to surf the Internet or anything like that. The, the epigenetics is, is that software that's loaded on there. And... The great thing about it is the bulk of that can be altered through lifestyle, uh, even nutrition, exercise. I mean, exercise, chronic exercise will alter the expression of over 7,000 genes. That's a third of our genome. We can consume fish oil chronically over time, and we can change expression of nearly 4,000 genes and how they, they function in the body. Uh, supplements, uh, hormones, all of this stuff has an effect on, on gene expression. So there's where we have the control. And people who look at genetics and say, you know, I'm, I'm predestined for something, just don't understand genetics very well. Mm. You know, and most of these reports that we get are based on something called single nucleotide polymorphisms. So to explain this, 
99.9% of your DNA is identical to mine. Out of the 3 billion base pairs, I mean, 3 billion code of the genome, 99.9% of yours and mine are identical. The difference in that less than 1% of that, that data is what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms. And that's what makes each of us different. It gives us red hair or dark hair or, you know, um, the ability to process certain things. This is what's looked at in genetic reports in general. So we're looking at just this less than 1% of the genome and, and really, you know, that's, that's essentially 10 million base pairs, but we, we generally only look at about 500 of them. So we're looking at a very, very, very small quantity of the code itself to inform us as to what that, that organism is doing, that human being. And so you understand the magnitude of what we're looking at and how that can impact the function of that person. It's not that it's not that big. Mm -hmm. And that's why we need to understand this epigenetics, this, this next layer over top of the code that allows for different expressions. I mean, the easy way to understand it too, is that, you know, we have the same genetic code in a skin cell as we have in, um, uh, cell in our eyeball. Okay. It's the exact same code. You map it out. You've got the exact same code. Well, what makes it, a, you know, a retinal cell versus a skin cell is how that code is expressed. So even throughout our bodies, we have, we have different cells that are expressing different portions of that code. And then we have the malleable portion of that code, which is what we actually can control through, through interaction. So I say we look at everything from our entire biosphere as an input. So, you know, the air we breathe, the, the environment we exist in, the food we consume, the exercise we do, our, our stress, our thoughts, all of this stuff informs our DNA and says, okay, here's what I need to do to thrive in this environment. And the genes change expression to say, okay, here's, here's what's going to work for me to best function in this kind of environment. Yeah. So much depth there. And, um, you know, if we can optimize our our epigenetics and optimize it for our situation, our environment, our, our life goals, um, we could we could certainly expand the, our our lifespan and uh, well, as we get into our health span as well. And I've heard you mention that, uh, if I remember correctly, that you would say that in today's era, um, that it's very reasonable for people to live to 150. Can you just uh, kind of expand on that? If I got that correct and What's the, what's the, either the data or the new knowledge that we have that really makes that a, a real probability? Well, you know, like I said, aging, we, most of us kind of feel now that it is, it, it's a combination of uh, programmed aspects of our DNA along with de deterioration of the human system. But a lot of that programming is designed around, okay, let's, let's not do as efficient a repair anymore. Let's kind of back off on this. Uh, this is, this is the nature of the aging process. Now, you know, we're in, we're in this new paradigm now where we have technology, we have medical advances that, and new knowledge that allows us to understand how these processes work and how we can truly intervene to not only create exceptional longevity, but to also create uh, exceptional performance of the human system. So taking the human system through advances in science and technology to perform at levels never thought possible naturally, and they aren't natural, that we're, we're in a realm of enhancement now. And this is what we work with in, in our medical practice is how do we, we take somebody from their current baseline state and advance them to the next phase of enhanced human and enhanced longevity. And, you know, this stuff is, is really on the edge. It is new stuff. I mean, I run in a world with a lot of the researchers in longevity and they're, you know, they're working on the rats and the worms in the lab and they're holding off because, you know, they don't want to put this stuff out there and yet it is out there. 
the the N of one, the biohacker world out there is trying this stuff. And they're looking for people to to kind of guide them on that or to give them medical oversight on that. And we kind of fill that role for a lot of them. Uh, we don't necessarily we can't necessarily recommend some of the things that they're doing, but we can certainly support them as as medical professionals and say, you know, this, this is not a great idea, but if you're going to do it, here's what you need to do to to kind of monitor it. And and so this is opening up a whole new world for for the people out there that are that are kind of self-experimenting or even the ones that are out there and saying, you know, this is cutting edge stuff. There's not a great deal of human data, but there's enough to say there's a safety factor involved and we can utilize it. I mean, in the longevity market, we're seeing something new every single day coming online. I mean, we've got rapamycin, which is now being taken by a lot of people, especially people that are researchers in the aging world. You know, it's funny, you, the, if you wanna know what's actually uh, valid and working and fairly safe, go to the go to the researchers. They're the ones taking this stuff because they know what what's coming with this. And you know, it's gonna take another five years of research and things like that to get it on the market for people. But it's available now. Uh, we've got FOXO4, a new, um, a new peptide which has no human trials right now but there's a ton of humans doing it and they're doing it online and and showing their results and showing what's happening but it's taking out what we call senescent cells uh, very cool um, longevity producer i mean uh, senescent cells are these zombie cells as we age we accumulate and they they accelerate the aging process and you can you can do stuff like this uh, FOXO4 DRI or a new one that just came out that does have human trials. It's been around for 20 years is Desatinib with quercetin. This is just a pill that you take, you know, for you take it for two days one week and take it for two days the next week and then you wait six months and do it again. And uh, it kind of zaps those senolytic cells and you just gradually deplete them over time. Uh, we've got a lot of work now with hormones and enhancing hormonal expressions in the body in a more um, having the body to produce more rather than replacing them. You know, everybody wanted to do growth hormone for a while and it was just not wasn't producing the results that that we we expected to see. And most of the aging people stepped away from it. But then the growth hormone releasing hormones came out and those help you to produce more naturally. So those became popular. We've got new mitochondrial uh, interventions that can upgrade mitochondrial expression. So they not only increase performance, but they increase longevity and protect you against um, chronic disease states and things like that. So there is, I mean, this world out there that, that I get a glimpse into would just blow people's minds away. I mean, it, it's just a fascinating place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know. And it's, uh, there's a handful of people that I followed and I know people in your circle as well that I'm aware of that uh, are doing some really mind-blowing things that are very, I suppose, accessible. Um, but it is going to be likely, I'm guessing, still a handful of years or many years before, I suppose, the, the reality of people dramatically improving lifespan is, I wouldn't say it becomes mainstream. That might be too far, too ambitious at this stage, or, or you correct me if I'm wrong, but, but it sounds like it's gone from a, you know, a very, very select inner circle of leading edge researchers. I guess, I guess the question I have for you is, what do you think the evolution of this will be in terms of reaching the masses? Like how many years are we away? Or, or what's that journey going to look like when, when normal, let's say everyday people will have access to it, whether they choose or not is a different thing, but whether they'll, they'll have access to it. Well, I see the whole the whole landscape changing at an exponential rate. I mean, we're and and this comes into really the world of bioinformatics. I mean, we've we're able to collect data. I mean, on on our clients, and, and this is what we do. I mean, we are data hounds with our clients. I mean, we we collect more data on you than you will ever imagine. And we take a very complex systems approach with that rather than a, an approach, oh, you've got this abnormal lab value, here's what we're going to do to treat it. Well, we look at it and say, well, why do you have that abnormal lab value? What's contributing to it? And if we intervene, how's that going to affect other systems? 
So we're getting we're getting laboratory data, we're getting genetic data, we're getting epigenetic data. We we have all of our clients on wearing wearable devices that most people have no idea the depth of information that you can get from these things. And um, on top of that, we're doing brainwave mapping. We're doing autonomic nervous system um, assessments that that see that looks into how the autonomic nervous system is actually responding to things. We look at body composition. We look at neuromuscular mapping. So we run current through all the muscular systems. We look at movement. We look at exercise. So we collect all of this data and all this data gets whiteboarded on each of our clients and, and our clinical team meets and we say, okay, here's where they are. All this data indicates that this system is in this state at this moment and this is where they want to be. How do we get them there? And that's when we bring in the technologies and the, and the scientific advances to say, okay, this is how we can do it. Now, what I'm getting at here is that this accelerated process is going to occur because of all this collection of biometric data that's occurring worldwide right now. Yes. I mean, we saw the, the thing with Fitbit where they had, what was it, 10 million user hours of data on sleep and resting heart rate. And the data that they got from that was stellar. I mean, suddenly we find that the, you know, the resting heart rate um, really does respond significantly to the the amount of activity minutes per week. But also, it was interesting to see that the best resting heart rates occurred when you slept between six and a half and seven hours a night. Now, we've always been big proponents of sleeping, you know, um, eight to eight and a half hours typically. Yeah. And and yet we're seeing the up curve of the resting heart rate when you get up to that level. So is that truly the level you want to be at? And the answer is we don't know that. Um, but now that we're tracking sleeping patterns so that we can see deep sleep, REM sleep and all of that, we can start to correlate what's actually happening with these people. Um, so again, I love everything you're saying there. A few questions are coming to my mind. So these tests, all these things that you can test, the data you can collect, in in really pragmatic terms, how do you collect that data? You mentioned wearables. Is it simple blood tests and things that people can do, I don't know, even online? Or, or is this something where you have to be locked in a lab for a few days and you poke and prod people? Well, one of the things is I would not recommend most people to try to biohack this themselves because typically they can't look objectively at what's happening. Um, the medical professionals that that can look at it from that objective standpoint, and especially when you do it as a team, you're not relying on just one person. And I think this is where things are heading in the, in the medical world is this, this more comprehensive approach to, to looking at the human system. But it's blood work. Um, you know, we have clients from all over the world that come in and we have two days in center. We prefer to have them come for five days because we can do some follow-up uh, work with brain stimulation, uh, neuropeptides, those kind of things where we can actually do some interventions while they're visiting. Mm -hmm. But generally, it's two days of assessment. So uh, generally, you know, 12 to 16 hours of, of time of going through assessments. It's pretty intensive. But it gives us all the data that we that we need in order to see what's happening with the system and informing us on what to do. But then the wearable data and we typically use uh, we like the Garmin Phoenix watch. Um, it's more of a performance watch, but the data that we get off of that is so in-depth. I mean, we get body battery, we get stress response, we get uh, breath rate now, we get all this stuff that is tracked continuously sleep data, uh, exercise data, and in-depth metrics on the exercise from VO2 max to lactate thresholds and, yeah. and all of this. So we can see, and I, I, I tell my clients, I creep on you every week because my, <laughs> I get on their dashboard and I look at their data every week. I look at every one of my clients data and I see what's going on in their week. Every month I get on a video call with them and we go over what's occurred during that month, what's working, what doesn't work, what's the next steps. And, you know, I, I love it. The, the comment I always love to hear at the end of the call is what's next, <laughs> because that means we got somebody that's, that's moving forward and, uh, and ready for the next, next level of upgrade. And, uh, it's a lot of fun working with this, this kind of a crowd as opposed to the sick care crowd. Exactly. Exactly. One one really uh, tactical question there with the wearables. One thing is that um, when they first came into the mass market, I, I had one as well. And uh, then I started hearing some other 
noise in the environment about you know the the risk or impact of EFTs and wearing these things all the time, especially at night. What's your point of view on on kind of the downside of having electric magnetic fields all around you at different times? Is uh, the upside vastly outweigh the downside, or is there something to to mitigate there? Well, absolutely. There's no free lunches in anything that we do. I mean, truly, any food we eat, anything we put into our body, any water we drink, there's pros and cons to everything. Uh, technology, there's pros and cons to that too. Now, there's a lot of uh, fear mongers out there in the world, and especially in the healthcare world online. Uh, that's how they tend to market. Uh, this is one of the things that when we when we do our marketing, we said that is one rule that, that our marketing team has to abide by is that there is absolutely nothing fear-based in our marketing. And the reason is, is one, we don't want those kind of clients to work with, ones that are prone to respond to fear-based marketing. But <laughs> two is we're looking for people with a mindset of forward movement, not moving away from something, but moving towards something. And in that, in that marketing niche, you know, the, the healthcare marketers online feel that they have to instill fear in order to get clients. And it was a real challenge with our marketing team to say, you know, you got to reword this because they kept giving us the same, same fear-based stuff. And they're like, it works though. And we're like, we don't care if it works. It's yes. not the clients we want. And you know, so what if we get half the number of clients, we'll get the clients that we want to work with. And so you get a lot of these fear mongers online trying to tell you something, oh, I know something you don't that's killing you, you know, especially with the, um, with a lot of this, um, you know, EMF stuff. I mean, first it was the, the back scanners at the airport, which was the biggest joke in the world, because, you know, if you're flying a flight during the daytime, you're getting so much ionizing radiation that that back scanner is a drop in the ocean. Uh, and it's pretty minimal to begin with. So, you know, they freak people out about that. And then they said, oh, do you have these symptoms? And they'd list every possible symptom they could have and say, oh, it's probably from the back scanner, yes. um, which was just crazy. And then you get the people who are the thyroid experts that will tell you everything in your life that's wrong is attributable to your thyroid. We don't do that. And, you know, with the with the EMF stuff, yeah, there's health consequences to EMF. But this is the this is the thing I have learned about our genetics and our epigenetics. We require stress in order to thrive. OK, now the, I'll repeat that because most people don't get that. We do require stress in order to thrive. We have what we call our our familiar zone, which is this zone of environment and lifestyle that we function in. And as long as you function within that zone, there's, there's no need to change anything and there's no growth that occurs. Now, when you stress the system, just like when you start exercising, you start exercising and the system goes into a zone of unfamiliarity and it says, I've, I need to adjust my gene expressions in order to thrive in this new style of environment that I live in. And this is why we see 7,000 genes changing expression with chronic exercise. And everything that we do requires a little bit of stress in order to get growth. You don't wanna go excessive because that's when you get into damage. Now with EMF, and this is my theory on this, is that you know this is an environmental uh, design that we we're kind of gonna have to live with and our genes will adapt. They will do well with it uh, over time. They may not initially, and there, there are some consequences to the EMF when it comes to uh, electrical aspects of mitochondria and things like that, but there's ways to mitigate that, and there are ways that um, we can gradually adapt to it. Now, with the wearable watches, I will tell you, you get about two millivolts of EMF from these things in a day, and compare that to 10,000 from your iPhone. Hmm. Uh, Again, drop in the bucket. It's the back scanner and the day, daytime flight. Yes. Uh, so people who make those comments about that really don't quite understand the wearable technology very well. And then I have to have, ask the follow-up question. What should we be doing with our iPhones and cell phones in terms of you know how close they are to our body, how often that is, airplane mode? What's your view on that? Well, we don't have any, we don't have the good solid science. I mean, the fear mongers out there will tell you that there's all kinds of science behind it, but I've looked in depth at this and we just don't have it. I mean, it's just like vaccines. You know, we, 
I can't give you a stance positive or negative on the vaccines right now. We just don't know enough is the answer right now. We're learning over time, but we just don't know the full details of the, the pros and cons of this. And like I said, everything has a con. So if you're just focusing on the cons, you're not going to do anything. So you've got to look at what's pro and con about this. Like, and a good example of this is metformin, which is a diabetic drug, but it's one of the one of the drugs that shows true age mitigation aspects. So it will increase longevity. There is no question about a healthy longevity. Every single one of the aging researchers is on metformin that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, then you get this, this data that comes out that says, oh, metformin causes um, mitochondrial disruption. It, it creates damage in the mitochondria. And so everybody was like, oh, you got to stop taking metformin. Everybody stay away from metformin. But what you got to look at is the net effect on the system, not at these individual pieces of the pros or the cons. What is the net effect? The net effect is improved health and improved longevity. So yes, you are going to have some negatives with it and you just want to make sure you mitigate those and, and do your best with it. But you've got to look at the balanced picture and, and not get so narrow in your focus that you're only focused on the negatives of everything because you truly will just not do anything if that's the case. Mm. You, um, part of your many things that you have your hands in these days is uh, consulting Google and, and perhaps other companies on artificial intelligence and healthcare. What, what are you excited about with the role of artificial intelligence in, in the world of healthcare? And, and again, what, can, what could the, uh, you know, the average person listening to this, how might they be impacted by what AI can be able to do for, for that industry and for themselves? Well, we're already de- developing drug design using artificial intelligence. This is the bioinformatics world, and bioinformatics is taking over everything. The... As more and more human data gets accumulated, it, it's just going to be—it's going to be impossible for our brains to actually process and find patterns. Yeah. This is where artificial intelligence can come in and mine that data. It can come in and it can say, "Oh, I'm seeing this pattern here." Just like the—you uh, know—we we see the pattern with the with the sleep and resting heart rate. But the, you know, when we start getting into looking at 70, 80, 90 thousands of of variables that contribute to one outcome, that's where you're going to really need that AI to come in and say, okay, here's the way this system works and here are patterns that occur. You know, I think we're going to we're going to get to the point where we have a biometric platform where it loads up all of our data, our labs, our genetics. Uh, our wearable data, all of this, and it's going to be able to inform us on a minute-to-minute basis of the best thing to do. You know, uh, you need to increase your vegetable intake because we've noticed that this is happening with you. Uh, You know, you're scheduled for a high-intensity training workout today, but I'm noticing your stress levels are are higher than typical. I think you need more rest. You should cut back on on the intensity of the exercise today. This is what we're getting to. We're going to get to this instantaneous feedback of this is the way to live an optimized life. Some people that that seems offensive to them and they're like, I don't want that for me. I want it. Mm -hmm. And for the people who want it, it will be available. And those are the people that will truly thrive in this environment. And and I was going to ask you as well that. who is this all for, you know, kind of the work that you do and obviously everyone can benefit from it. And maybe it's still very much in the, I don't know if, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm, the term isn't quite right, but maybe the elite circles of people who are willing to either do the work or invest in themselves and invest the time, but also be willing to collect all this data. Sure. Anyone would benefit from it. Um, is this really for anyone who's interested in improving their health or is this still in the, the upper inner circle of people who are maybe on that upper, I don't know what percentage it is, but small, small section of the population who's really keen at optimizing everything that they want out of life. Well, and, and that's the big thing. People are saying, well, this is only going to be for those rich and rich and elite people that can afford it, but that's not true. I mean, what we're seeing now, especially with, with the new technologies of peptides. I mean, peptides can be sequenced with a simple peptide sequencer and you can get them just about anywhere. You can buy them online without a medical prescription right now. I don't advise that, but they're available. 
and you just have to find the you know the protocols the right knowledge the way to use it uh, together and and that's the role that we're kind of filling as being the medical side of this for people but we also have coaches and so yeah i mean working with us can range you know up to sixty thousand dollars a year but you can also work with coaches that are trained in our academy and the lifestyle aspects of of this longevity piece which is very impactful for as little as four hundred dollars so you know there's it's not outside of the reach of most people and that's what we're seeing in the longevity world is that you're not seeing development of drugs that are going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars for sure uh sure you know you're gonna you're gonna find these drugs coming out in longevity but they're being produced by companies that are sponsored by people that aren't necessarily interested in monetary gain. They're, they're being funded by these billionaires. They're not being funded by government or pharmaceutical companies. They're being funded by people with a passion to change something in the world, which is really cool. And this, that's what I love about the longevity industry right now mm. is it really is something that people are more on a eudaimonic mission for rather than this hedonic gain of financial resources. Yes. So I don't see longevity as being outside of the limits of, of people's uh, act. That's great. That's great. Um, you mentioned a few times lifestyle uh, as being a big, obviously a big part of it. And I've heard you say that stress optimization or stress, you know, the impact of stress on our aging and in our lifespan and health span is, is perhaps bigger than we certainly understand. Can you share your perspective and what people should be maybe more aware of and just be more actionable on as it relates to their managing their own stress, even though we do need it uh, too much of it or chronic stress is going to cause some damages. And it's not, it's rarely ever stressors themselves. It's our response to the stressor, our internal response to a stressor. I mean, you know, people can't make you mad. You choose to be mad based on the circumstances of yep. that, what that person has presented with you. So we, we give up the, the aspect that, that is truth, which is we have control over this. And what we're able to do with the autonomic nervous system assessments that we do is we actually see what happens within the system. So we look at skin conductance, skin temperature, respirations in the chest and belly, heart rate variability, muscle tension, expired carbon dioxide levels. And we take people through stressors and see what happens during those stressors. And we teach them what we call the anti-fragility state where these stressors can occur, but their system doesn't respond in a negative way. Responding to an acute stress is, is great. You want to have that happen, but you don't want to carry it over after the stressor is removed. And this is what we train people to do is how to take that stress response from that elevated state right back down to baseline to that Hindu Calcom state that existed before the stressor came into play. And so we are fans of stress. We like stress, but we don't like it in a chronic state that can be detrimental to health. Yeah. And so what have you, what are you, some of the practical, uh, actionable points that you typically find with your clients. Uh, let's start with stress optimization, ways to bring their stress response down. What do people actually do uh, in their day-to-day -day life that can help them with that? Well, the biggest thing is uh, breath work. So, and, and I'm not talking about necessarily meditation practice. I'm talking about how you breathe on an ongoing basis. I mean, have somebody kind of count your breaths in a minute. And if you're breathing over over 10 breaths a minute, you're breathing too fast in a resting state. That is very common. I mean, we have people coming in that are breathing 20, 24 breaths a minute as a baseline state. That wow. is not healthy. We look at their, their breath structure. So, you know, are they breathing in the chest? Are they breathing in the belly? How deep is the breath? How much CO2 do they blow off with each breath? Those are things that we, we take for granted that we know how to do just because we've always done them but we don't truly know how to do them. And they can profoundly change our autonomic nervous system by working with that. So some people we will work with, with breath structure. Some people we will work with heart rate variability. Some people will work with CO2 training, uh, but you've got to have the assessment to see where the system is off track. 
yes. in order to, you know, if you can, if you can measure it, you can manage it. That's the, that's the rule. And we are data driven in everything in life. I mean, as, as business people, you know, we don't do things without having data to confirm that we're doing the right thing. And then we put KPIs in place to say, oh, okay, here are our performance indicators and this is working or it's not. We don't do that with health. It just doesn't happen. And that's essentially where we come into play. And I, I love that. And uh, you're absolutely, I agree with you that you, you can manage what you measure. And if you don't measure it, you're probably not going to be spending any time or effort uh, managing it. When you uh, have your you people, you mentioned coming into your, your um, organization for two days, ideally five days, is that a one shot deal? Like once they do all that testing, you've got that data and now you can monitor them from that point forward? Or is this a kind of, is there an annual check-in or something of that equivalent? Uh, people generally, generally we encourage them to come for an annual checkup and, you know, in our, in our medical center, in the high end medical programs, I mean, people have no problem flying into Austin or Asheville or Sarasota. So, uh, there's three centers that they can, they can pick from that are, that are nicely spread out and they come in for that two day evaluation. And from that point forward, we work with them on a monthly basis throughout the year. They also have a coach that works with them. So they're getting check-ins about every two weeks uh, from uh, clinical staff, and they're also getting monitored on a weekly basis. I mean, I, I will send out messages to them and say, hey, what's happening with your stress this week? I see your stress like jacked up on Tuesday. What happened? Or I'll see that they're, they only got four hours of sleep one night, and I'll say, you know, what happened with the four hours of sleep? So it's kind of creepy <laughs> in a sense. I mean, people are like, man, he's creeping on me. But people who love that accountability thrive in that accountability. Yes. You know, it's rare that you have uh, an opportunity to have uh, someone coaching you that is looking at this stuff all the time. Uh, we tend to not pay attention to it. I have some clients that won't even look at their wearable data. And I said, that's fine. Let me look at it. You just wear the watch. And I plug in and I tell them what I'm seeing. And they say, oh, yeah, you know what? I had a glass of wine that night and this is what happened. So they start to learn uh, what we call interoception, which is the ability to feel what the body's going through. So a lot of times their stress will go up when they first start with us. And they're like, I didn't feel anything with it. And by the end of the year, they know when that stress is going up without having to look at something. So it's basically a training program in learning how to read the signals that the body generates. And I guess that also, again, I'm not sure if it's the right terminology, but you hear a lot about um, customized medicine or even customized nutrition. So you get very, very specific on what vegetables you should eat or shouldn't eat. That goes perhaps with the data and the technology that you use goes well beyond you know eating for your blood type or here's the generic version of what foods you, sh you know, are good, quote unquote, good for you or not. Um, so it sounds like you really get into the, the customization of it and, and people really do get very, very detailed reports on on what they should be doing more of, what they should be doing less of. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, and specifically with diet, I mean, you know, we do not, we don't have a, a specific dietary approach. Uh, we have some people that come in with dietary preferences, you know, oh, I want to be ketogenic, I want to be vegetarian, I want to be Mediterranean, whatever. We'll work within the parameters of what we see that will match what we're seeing in their genetics and what matches with their goals mm. in life. So, you know, the, here's the, here's the interesting thing about genetics is those, those polymorphisms that we carry that I talked about earlier, those develop ancestrally based on the environment that we're ancestrally exposed to. So somebody who grows up in a culture as an Inuit Eskimo, let's say, or they, they were born of Inuit Eskimos who had centuries of living in that environment they're going to be adapted in their gene expressions to that type of environment. And so one of the things with their nutrition is they tend to have genetics that indicate that they do very well with a high fat diet. And it's because ancestrally they've selected out those, those genes and those gene expressions that will help them to thrive in that kind of environment. So you put them on a, you know, a high carb uh, diet and they're going to get heart disease. But the converse is true of somebody who like grows up in a, with an ancestry background of Southeast Asia. 
and we can look at the genetics and we can see those expressions and say, you know what, you probably ought to avoid high fat because your genes are really adapted to, to thriving in an environment that's higher in complex carbs. But in, in North America and Europe and everything else, we're such a melting pot of people that we've lost that identity of what that heritage truly is. And that's where we can utilize the genetics and say, oh, these are the gene expressions you're carrying. And, you know, this is the kind of dietary pattern that you're going to do best with. You know, I have people that will come in um, wanting to do ketogenic or they're doing ketogenic and they're like, this is really what I want to do. And yet I look at their genetics and they, they just really do not do well with high saturated fat. They get a lot of inflammation. They get a lot of weight gain. And what we do is we modify the diet. We just say, okay, stay ketogenic, but we're going to do a Mediterranean ketogenic where your fats are predominantly monounsaturated fats and omega-3s rather than saturated fats. So you can adapt it to their, to their desires and goals very easily. And what's the, what's the, what are some of the common, I guess it's going to be different for every individual you work with, but what are some of the biggest shifts that you see in your clients like again when they wake up in the morning what changes for them are we is it cognitive functioning is it overall energy levels is that how it manifests itself in results or is it more nuanced and more more detailed than that no it it truly is pretty dramatic in the majority of our clients um they're they're usually high performers so these are people that have uh, achieved a fair amount of success in life, especially in business. And they had been former, you know, athletically fit and all of a sudden they've just kind of let things go or, or they just say, you know, things are okay, but I know I can be better. And our goal is to truly achieve a, a dramatic change in the first three months. That is a goal that we have with all of our clients because we know when they feel that and they see that change in the first three months, they're going to buy in very strongly. If it takes us nine months to get there, the buy-in is a little less strong. So yes. we really focus on a rapid response with our clients. And, you know, we have we have very aggressive protocols that we will will use to get them there. But they may come in and say, you know, uh, I just want to look better on stage or, you know, I want to, uh, I want to get more sleep. That's my goal. Or I want to be able to respond to stress better. Those will be very specific goals that they will come in with, but we don't focus on the one goal. We're focusing on the comprehensive, uh, improvement of the entire human system. So despite what they come in for, we're still working with sleep, nutrition, exercise, supplementation, hormones, uh, athletic performance, um, environmental exposures, all of this stuff. And what it turns out is they suddenly realize all these things that were not lined out in their life that they say, you know, I had no idea what I was missing here and I feel absolutely fantastic. So the, the dramatic response we get, and that's why, you know, the majority of our clients come from referrals from somebody who has seen one of our clients. They'll say, man, what are you doing? Uh, and that's where probably 90% of our referrals come from is from existing clients being exposed. I mean, I got two texts this morning from a client that, uh, from two different clients that wanted to refer a friend that had asked about it. So, you know, that is, that is a true testament of what we do. And we have 80% renewal of clients every year. I mean, that is huge. And, um, yeah, you know, that once you get a taste of that, you just want to, you want to dive deeper. Well, you mentioned the, I think much earlier in this conversation, one of your favorite things you hear your clients say is what's next. So I'll have to ask you the question, Daniel, what's next for you? What's uh, what's on the horizon for you that you're, you're excited about and, and keen to continue to explore? Well, we have a, we have a new program that we, uh, we actually mapped out while we're down here in Costa Rica. We had our executive team down here and uh, we just spent a week kind of mapping it out, but it's what we call the appear on age rejuvenation protocol which ironically is AARP. Um, <laughs> we thought that that, uh, that really uh, fit well with the, uh, the U.S.'s AARP um, retirement programs. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, it's all about, it, it starts with a week-long retreat uh, that we're going to run in Costa Rica and where we really do some interventions, do some lifestyle work, uh, do some brain training, brain stimulation, working with that. And then 
we start laying in some of the cutting edge age rejuvenation technologies like senolytics and mTOR inhibitors. And I know I'm probably speaking a foreign language right now, but these are all cutting edge things that are showing really great promise in the age rejuvenation world. And I'm not talking about just slowing the aging process, I'm talking about things that can set back the aging clock, which is just amazing. I mean, I don't know if you saw the study that came out just recently from Dr. Fahey and Horvath, where they, they do they do something called epigenetic age, which is looking at marks on the epigenome that indicate how old you are. And, and this is pretty well established um, science in this, but they showed uh, age reversal of a net of two and a half years uh, change in the course of a year with the people who went through the protocol and they showed improvement in the immune systems and all this. So it was really the first medical study to show that aging can reverse in a sense uh, with the metrics that we look at. And so it's exciting for people to finally see that. Now, we've been using the epigenetic age for the last three years in our clinic, and we've uh, we've seen these age reversals already because we're doing protocols very similar to what they use in the study. In fact, probably more advanced than what they're using in the study. And this new program that we're getting ready to launch is going to just take that to a whole new level. I love it. I love it. That's exciting. Uh, we're looking forward to watch, watching how that un un unfolds itself. If you, um, you mentioned a lot of your clients are high performers, you know, maybe they, in their past life or, or at least in previous years, they were maybe uh, at their peak and they've maybe let it slide a little bit. They're ready to get back. If, if someone's listening to this and they want to be more of a high performer, things are okay on their level, but they know there's more for them. I, I don't know if it's a fair question because I know you work with a lot of complex ways of uh, approaches, but if you had to simplify it down, what would you say would be the maybe the three things that people really need to look at to begin with. If they're going to start maybe um, changing the trajectory of their own health, their own wellness and vitality or longevity, and they really say, okay, okay, Dr. Daniel, um, where do I begin? What, what do you say is the, the three things to begin with? Well, one is, you know, I can't say, I can't say three things because, you know, you can't, you can't take a complex human system and narrow it down like that um, is the is the dilemma that I'm, I'm left with in that because I see all of these systems interacting. So nutrition, sleep, um, stress, uh, supplementation, all of these interact with each other and changes in one will affect changes in the other. And so, you know, I have people that come to me that have MS and we never address their MS. We address everything in their life to help improve aspects of, of their human system and their MS gets better, their symptoms get better. So, you know, focusing in on just, you know, one or three things generally is not going to create that, that new potential within. You've got to really take a fully comprehensive approach. I mean, you, you see people that will They'll go on a diet and exercise program to lose weight, and they may lose weight initially and, and do well, but then all of a sudden they stall. They can't figure out what's going on. Well, it turns out they're sleeping four or five hours a night. You know, their stress levels are too high. So trying to think that, oh, my, my problem with my weight is I eat too much. Well, why are you eating too much? You know, there's more detail to that. I mean, people come in and they say, I just want to lose 20 pounds. That's their goal. And it's like, nobody wants to just lose 20 pounds. That's not a goal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't exist. So tell me why that's important to you. And we just keep drilling them down until we get them to the point where they say, oh, okay, you know, this is why I want to lose weight. I want more, you know, attention from my spouse. Um, you know, and that's the goal. It's no longer to lose weight. We're, we're actually figuring out a way for them to have more sex in a, in a weekly basis. Yes. And that's the met metric we use to see if we're successful. Because if we get them to lose 20 pounds and they're not having more sex with their spouse, they're going to be unhappy. If they're having more sex with their spouse and they don't lose 20 pounds, they're probably going to be satisfied with what we did for them. Exactly. So getting, getting to that why is really, really a key that we work with in the first couple of hours of our assessment is trying to figure out exactly what people are really motivated by. Uh, I love it. I, I had a feeling you you would uh, navigate your way around the, the top three, uh, top three steps, uh, given, <laughs> given your knowledge and depth. So I appreciate your answer for sure. Um, well, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think there's more and more we could go in, go into. And I think there's I, hopefully that someone listening to this and many people listening to this will be inspired to not only take a look at their health, but also get, get in touch with you. And before I ask the final question, 
where can people learn more about your work or get in touch with you or find out how to get involved in your programs? Well, we have, um, we have a couple websites, but the, the main website for the medical centers is appearoncenter.com. So A P E I R O N center.com. Now, if you want to get on a call with one of our, uh, onboarding team and, and they do, they do a pretty extensive interview before you kind of get to the point where we're, we look at you as a potential client. Um, you can go to, um, three, two, one upgrade.com. Um, and that will get you to, um, the scheduling calendar to schedule a call with one of our onboarding coaches and, um, and find out if you're really a good fit for the programs that we have. Wonderful. So we'll have those, those links in our show notes. So it's, um, appearoncenter.com and, and 321upgrade.com. Correct. Love it. Love it. So Daniel, my final question for your time here on the Ignition Show, what do you hope to ignite in the world? I hope to reach a billion people by 2025 with this new paradigm of really a complex system approach to health that uh, can create kind of new and expanded potentials with each in, within each individual. I love it. Well, hopefully this uh, this time here today can put a little small dent in that $1 billion number, uh, one billion, uh, number. And um, again, really appreciate your time, Daniel. Uh, I love your wisdom. I love the work that you're doing. And I'll be sure to, to follow up uh, on those websites as well. Thanks again for your time. Excellent. Been a pleasure. That was Daniel Stickler, co-founder and chief medical officer of the Appearance Center for Human Potential, a pioneer in creating limitless peak performance in all aspects of life. You can find all the links in our show notes. We want you to get the most of the time you've invested listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you learn, and most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned or found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com connect and let us know what struck you and what was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today. You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments and follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, it's my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review on iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We actually read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website, and respond to as many people as we can. And remember, whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.